Hi, and welcome to the ACO Show. I'm Brian Chaglinski, and today we have a very special episode. It's not often that you have two leaders of Medicare and two leaders from Medicare's Innovation Center on one call, but thanks to our guest today and our guest host, we condensed all of that experience in three people. Today, we're thrilled to have on the program Dr. Mina Seshimani, the Director of Medicare and the Deputy Administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Liz Fowler, the Director of the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Innovation, and also a Deputy Administrator for CMS. And out of our boundless generosity, Josh and I stepped away from hosting duties for this episode, and we handed it over to someone who was also a Director of Medicare and a Senior Leader at CMMI, Allidate's Chief Policy Officer, Sean Cavanaugh. With a lot of health policy experience and a lot of deputy administrators packed into one ACO show burrito. Sean, how did you think the conversation went? Hey, Brian. Thanks for letting me do this. I really liked it how they were able to step out of the day-to-day and talk about you know, how they view the, the basic role of their centers and their positions as opposed to you know, debating specific policies. And I think they, they return to the theme of they're all part of one common strategic vision. One of the reasons that stood out to me is ever since it was created, the Innovation Center has almost been referred to as an entity unto itself. And often people forget it is part of CMS, but they kept returning to the theme that they're coordinated and working closely together. Yeah, I think it's emphasized too, their career trajectories and their past roles have been in different parts of the department and of the agency. And so they do bring an insight that these are all parts of one whole and they're all working together towards a common goal, I, I, especially as a writer, appreciated Liz's metaphor of being an icebreaker for the agency and, and seeing how there are complementary roles between their their different jobs. Um, so I think it was a great conversation, and we'll we'll go ahead and kick it off to you to chat with Mina and Liz. Liz, Mina, thank you so much for being here. I know how busy you both are, so I appreciate you taking some time for our audience. Before we get into the health policy issues, I want to acknowledge you both were, have been in government before, then left and went into the private sector. And this is second or third stint for you, <laughs> depending on who we're talking to. How, what's it like going back? What's it like having been in government, going out into the private sector, and then taking those experiences back under a different administration? Liz, you've done it more than once. Let's start with you. Sure. Well, first, thanks so much for the opportunity. It's really nice to be here and share a virtual stage with Mina, who's one of my favorite colleagues. This is my third stint back at CMS. And let me just say that these jobs are really an honor and a privilege. It's a real opportunity to impact health policy and hopefully improve health care for Americans who rely on Medicare and Medicaid for their health care. Um, It's been great to be back in the department. CMS, I think, has some of the hardest working and most dedicated public servants, hands down, deep subject matter experts who see themselves really as stewards of public health programs. And this time around, it's been great in particular working closely with the current CMS leadership team. We've all worked together in the past. We know and trust each other and we work well together. So that's really a real benefit. And I think for this conversation, more importantly, across the team, there's a shared mission, and sense of driving access to affordable, value-based care. Thanks. Mina? Yeah, well, this is also my third stint, twice at HHS and now at CMS. And one of the things that's been so amazing for me as a physician has been the opportunity to both practice medicine on the ground, to lead care transformation you know, as part of a large health system, which is the role I had before coming back in for Medicare, 
And then to take those learnings and those experiences where you would see on the ground, gosh, there's got to be a better way to take care of my patients. You know, or there's got to be a better way that we can really drive change in the system and to be able to really bring that to life through the policies and operations of, you know, where I am now with the Medicare program. And again, just to emphasize the, the team in, at CMS is really incredible. When I started my first day doing a Zoom, introducing myself to, you know, all the people in the Center for Medicare, I thanked them for all of the work that they had done during the public health emergency where I was helping to lead the COVID response for, you know, the DC, Maryland region. And every time there was a CMS waiver or a learning opportunity, you know, sharing of best practices as the pandemic was evolving, all of us were saying, oh, thank goodness. Thank goodness. Okay, we can do this now. We can do that. And, you know, I know how much work goes into that, how much thought, how much dedication. And to now be able to lead this team, it's truly been a privilege. So a lot of practitioners out there have had to deal with the public health emergency, changing the way they do business, how they see patients using telehealth, not using telehealth, you know, switching back and forth. Though I imagine government had to change the way it worked as well for health reasons. And having been in government myself, it's hard to imagine you know, we, when I was there, everybody was there five days a week, but I imagine that's changed. Have you found that people have adapted well? I'll just say, I think this is an incredibly flexible and nimble agency for as large as we are in such a big responsibility and role in the healthcare system. I think this CMS is really to be commended for quick actions and steps taken really to keep the health system going, keep workers safe and keep hospitals and other providers from going under, I think Mina described that well, having been on the other side of, of the pandemic and the CMS actions. And, and that flexibility and problem-solving approach continued when we arrived. I'm just thinking, Mina, for example, when you and your team figured out how to cover COVID test kits, had to do so kind of on the fly. And now, of course, we're in the unwinding phase, which entails a whole new set of challenges. And so I guess I would just say, you know, a lot's asked of CMS and the agency just consistently delivers, whether that be working from home or, you know, in the office. And I think we're navigating that landscape now. But regardless, I think this is an agency that consistently delivers. Yeah, and I think I would add, and I felt this way at the start of the pandemic when I was working in the healthcare environment, leading care transformation. The pandemic really served to be this opportunity where you know, we were all able to come to the fore, okay, this is why we're in healthcare and we want to help people. And just that sense of mission and that that feeling that you can do something to really help and to have impact. And where that kind of comes back to the ethos of the agency really to serve, you know, in our case, the 60, more than 64 million people in the Medicare program. And where can you try to also learn from what happened. It was such a transformational time in terms of care delivery, in terms of how across government we worked together, how in partnership with everyone in the healthcare ecosystem we worked together, and where are there ways that we can harness that moving forward and really being able to you know, em embody that continuous learning, that you know, humility that comes with when you're dealing with you know, once in a lifetime, once in a generation type situation, 
you know, I think that's something that's really bolstered the team that, you know, we have really come, come through, made a lot of policy changes, really partnered, you know, to drive operations and, you know, saved countless lives in the process. And that's something that I think drives us moving forward, as, you know, Liz mentioned, as, you know, now we're, you know, unwinding. And also it comes to what we talk about with value-based care and how do we harness all of that energy and momentum and learnings as we look to continued care transformation. So speaking of the organization or the agency, you know, at the outset, we told our audience what your titles are. But I think to many people, CMS is just this behemoth agency, and they're not sure what all these different parts do. You both have really senior but distinct jobs. Can you explain a little to our audience about what exactly your center does and how it relates to the other? Liz, let's start with you. Oh, I would I would actually say Mina should go first. I think Mina is sort of the, dare I say, 800-pound gorilla of CMS and really... <laughs> or at least the 800 people. <laughs> yeah. All right, great. The Center for Medicare, which is the center that I lead, serves as the focal point for all policy and operations for the Medicare program. And as part of that, we have Medicare Parts A for institutional care, B for you know, more outpatient clinical services, which together form traditional or fee-for-service Medicare. Then we have Part C for Medicare Advantage and Part D for prescription drug coverage. And we really view all of those pieces as a whole as we think about the Medicare program and how we really want to drive our vision of advancing health equity and expanding access to coverage and care, driving innovation for high quality whole person care and making sure that the program is affordable and sustainable for future generations. So really it is soup to nuts from the regulations that we put out to guide the policy to all the operations around billing and claims, you know, our partnerships with our Medicare Learning Network to provide provider education on various topics. So it really covers that, that full range. And I think in terms of the interface with the other centers, I think there has really been a concerted effort to align all of our work where, and I think we'll probably get into this, where, you know, we really want to make sure that we are driving towards this vision collectively together. Because I know when I was taking care of patients, you're not necessarily paying attention to, okay, this patient has that payer and this other patient has that other payer. And these are the quality metrics I need to remember for patient A and then these other things for patient B. You're just there with the person in front of you who you want to take care of. And what can we all do collectively together to make that relationship, make, make that care experience as effective as possible to really provide better care, you know, improve health and drive smarter spending. And so to that end, you know, our partnership with CMMI is so important because CMMI provides us with the, you know, the testing of models to see, okay, what could we change about how, you know, in my case, the Medicare program is working, what's working, what isn't. And if there's a test that works, then let's look at how we can scale it into the Medicare program. And so we can provide ideas to CMMI, hey, here are areas where we think that there are opportunities for improvement. Is this something that you can look at? And then as CMMI looks at things, if they say, hey, this is something that really works, then we look at, okay, is this something that we can bring 
writ large into the Medicare program. And hopefully we'll come back to some specifics, you know, examples with that. I'll turn it over to my favorite colleague, Liz. <laughs> As Mina described, the Innovation Center, our goal is to test new and innovative payment and care delivery approaches. So our goal is to find new pathways for improving quality, achieving better health outcomes for Medicare and Medicaid patients, hopefully holding down program costs or even reducing costs. We're like the R&D component of CMS. And Mina, I thought you were going to use our favorite analogy. We talk about our roles by comparing the Innovation Center to an icebreaker that's sort of cutting through the ice for the big tanker to be able to pass through. So if you think about barriers to delivering better care for patients, and what if we were able to design a demonstration that addressed those barriers and then really looked and evaluated whether those changes improved quality and reduced costs. So we have models that focus on certain conditions and diseases like end-stage renal disease or cancer, specific provider types like primary care physicians, state models like the Maryland Total Cost of Care model. And then we also do some tests within Medicare Advantage and Part D. But really the goal is informing the policy that and the programs that Mina runs. And so I think we're at our best when we're working together and coordinating and collaborating on sort of what are those innovations that we should be testing and what what do we want to try to bring back into the program to really make it better for, for beneficiaries. You know, one of the areas where you've done a lot of ice breaking and maybe not gotten enough credit for it because you haven't necessarily followed the statutory thing of certifying the models, but really you've been the R&D shop for the ACOs and we should turn our attention there. This is the ACO show after all. So we've had you know, a little over a decade of ACOs since they first launched. The program's grown. It's gotten changed over time a couple of important ways. Mina, you've made some important changes last year. Can you both just reflect on where we've been, where we are, and what we might expect going forward? And Mina, in particular, you, you know, you've done the big reg you did last year. And then Liz, you've got your ACO reach model, which is testing some really compelling possibilities for the future of the program. So if you could touch on those. Well, let me just say, we have learned so much over the last decade that CMMI has been testing models. And you mentioned we've done Pioneer ACO, NextGen, ACO Reach. We've done elements of components like the ACO investment model that was just scaled into the shared savings program. I think what we have learned is that it is possible to organize and deliver and pay for care very differently um, and give providers really that ability to spend more time with their patients where care is coordinated across sites of care and across specialties and where patients with the highest needs can be given extra care and attention. And we can deliver more care at home in settings that work best for patients and their caregivers. I think we have learned a lot about the shift to value-based care and the shift to accountable care, which is the goal that we have set as an agency to really move beneficiaries in traditional Medicare into a relationship where someone is their quarterback and, and nav helping them navigate their care and their care delivery. But it's been a pretty slow process, and I think it's taken maybe longer than, than many of us thought it would. I also want to just say and you had mentioned and, and Mina referred to this notion of when a model is scaled, if we find that a model works, it can be scaled. And I think what we found is that the bar for success or certification is a really high one. And it's been very difficult to achieve, especially when you think about areas in healthcare that have been historically underfunded, like primary care. So it's 
I think some look at us and say, well, you haven't saved money, but I think we have, we feel like we have learned quite a bit that cost savings are important, but even more important is improving quality, improving outcomes and improving health equity and really achieving a better care experience for patients. And so we're continuing to think about innovations that can be scaled into the shared savings program. And I think we're also talking, and Mina will probably talk about this, using the shared savings program as really the chassis for innovation. So instead of having a separate model, can we really test these innovations within the shared savings program? So it's not a choice of having to jump out to join another model, but you can stay in shared savings and still be that testing ground for the next generation of innovation. Yeah, I mean, the Medicare Shared Savings Program is run through the Center for Medicare. And so to carry on our favorite analogy where, you know, the CMMI Innovation Center models are the ice cutters, we are that, you know, aircraft carrier that, that, that you know, moves. And so we have this goal of by 2030, having 100% of people in traditional Medicare in an accountable care relationship and a wonderful vehicle to use to achieve that goal is that aircraft carrier, right? It's the largest accountable care organization program in the country. So how can we leverage that to really not only grow participation in this program, but drive it to really achieve the vision that we have? So for example, you know, and we've mentioned the, the scaling of tests that work. And again, it doesn't have to be the entire model, even if there's parts that work. And so CMMI had the ACO investment model to provide upfront dollars to providers to invest in infrastructure so they could become an ACO and found that, you know, that actually reaped benefits in terms of improved quality for the people in it, and for shared savings, ultimately, that more than made up for the money that was given upfront. So we in the Center for Medicare took that concept and adapted it into the Medicare Shared Savings Program writ large. And so that, Sean, to what you were alluding to with the big rulemaking that we did last year, one of the big changes that we made to the Medicare Shared Savings Program was creating this advanced investment payment program to provide upfront dollars to providers, you know, in rural and underserved areas that they can invest in infrastructure, in team-based approaches to care, in addressing health-related social needs. So it's one of the first times that Medicare dollars can be used, for example, to partner with community-based organizations to address food, housing, transportation issues. So where we are finding ways to grow the program, but also do so in a way that addresses the gaps that exist in our healthcare system. You know, and again, that's just one example of where we are, we between Medicare and the Innovation Center are partnering together. And it's just one example of the kind of work we're doing in our big ACO program to really try to drive those improvements, drive growth in the program, and to really direct the transformational efforts of these accountable care organizations towards our common goals. And maybe I'll just add one more thing before you move on. And that is last year, we put out a joint article in the New England Journal of Medicine sort of laying out a vision for ACOs in the future. And I think we're working on sort of the 2.0 version of that. So stay tuned, but just want to say that it's a real partnership and 
And that part of what I think we can do together is lay out that pathway forward. And so more to come, you'll see more from us in the future. Yeah, this is an aside, but one of the nice things about this group that you have at CMS is there have been a number of, whether they're CMS publications or published in health affairs or elsewhere, where there's three, four, five senior people at CMS from across the agency, all articulating a common vision across different programs and putting their names to it, you know, rather than just saying it's CMS policy. It's like, we're going to affirmatively go out there and put our names on it publicly. I've really enjoyed following this closely. Because I, I think, Sean, to how you started the conversation where, you know, we all bring our experiences and perspectives into the work that we do now. And I think that is very powerful where, you know, when we're talking about alignment across our centers, like I said, when I was leading care transformation before, we had a big spreadsheet with all of the various quality measures across all the programs that we were being held accountable for. And it just generated so much confusion. And now we're working across all of our centers to create, you know, core set of quality metrics, right? I think you know, the the partnership that we have is powerful, both in the fact that it aligns all of our programs together to really drive momentum, but also each of us individually as leaders bring our relevant expertise and experiences to bear to really create that more holistic view towards how we can, you know, really impact healthcare for our populations. Great. Now, you two have both touched on two really important issues that I want to get to. Let's take them in order. Health equity, you know, enormous credit to this group at CMS for not just raising the profile of health equity, but actually taking tangible steps. I mean, I think that every reg we've seen come out, whether, you know, no matter what it's dealing with, you can always see that someone's gone through there with a fine tooth comb from a health equity perspective and said, where can we really make it? you know, move the ball on this because health equity is such a complex and big issue. You could get paralyzed. Like there's so much to do, but you are doing a lot. So let's start with Mina. Like why did this group at CMS decide to make health equity so important? And how do you see it consistent with, you know, the vision of Medicare that you articulated at the outset? No, I think all of us know that the pandemic really brought to the fore the cracks in the healthcare system, the disparities that have long existed, really brought all of that to the fore through the differential impact on populations. And, you know, working on issues of disparities is something that, again, coming back to what each of us have done over our careers, it really has been central to a lot of the work of all of us in CMS leadership. And in the Medicare program, to the point you were saying, Sean, about articles, we published a piece in JAMA on kind of how we approach equity in the Medicare program. And importantly, I think equity is something that we have to think about in the everyday. You know, we have tremendous operations to keep the Medicare program running. And if the, if the program is not running in as smooth a way as possible, really enabling people to understand where to turn, understand their benefits, be able to navigate. It's not the people, you know, who have MDs or health policy experts, have college education. They're not the people who have problems, right? People who have, you know, language, who, you know, have limited English proficiency. People who maybe do not have that, you know, level of education, who are working multiple jobs. 
who are caring for family members, people with complex chronic health conditions and social needs who fall through the cracks. So it is so important for us in everything we do in the Medicare program, all of our operations, that we are thinking about what impact that has across the diverse populations that we have in our country who rely on the program. And it comes down to things like we're rolling out 200 new graduate medical education slots a year. How do we distribute those slots? We are purposefully prioritizing rural and underserved areas for those slots so that you can have people training in the areas that have the greatest needs. So they learn the needs of those communities and they're more likely to stay in practice there when they finish their training. So really thinking about equity in everything we do and then looking at where there are specific policies that we can put in place to really drive efforts to reduce disparities and advance equity. And again, with the theme that we've been talking about of aligning across our programs to really you know, harness that momentum. So in the Medicare Shared Savings Program, again, the big regulation that we, that we did, we finalized a health equity adjustment to reward excellent care for underserved populations. So ACOs that are caring for underserved populations, they meet the quality metrics, they get additional financial reward. And we have finalized doing something similar in Medicare Advantage with the Health Equity Index, where plans that hit quality metrics and are caring for you know, underserved populations, that gets incorporated into the quality bonus payment calculation for the STAR ratings. And we're now proposing similar things in um, the skilled nursing facility payment system, the inpatient prospective payment system. So again, taking that theme of rewarding excellent care for underserved populations and really trying to put it in place in an aligned way across various parts of the Medicare program. One of the things you've done really well is walking that line. I know, you know, CMS often gets pressured to lower the bar for providing high quality care to traditionally disadvantaged populations. And all, all the adjustments I've seen you reference and make haven't done that, but you've tried to encourage higher quality care, but not low, not through by lowering the bar. Liz, I know, you know, your whole ACO REACH program is oriented around equity, but you're doing other things as well. Do you want to comment? Yeah, sure. And, and again, just to reiterate that this is a whole of government approach. I think it really starts, this is a priority for the Biden-Harris administration, passed down to the a priority for the secretary. It is embedded in the CMS strategy. And then advancing health equity is one of the key components of the CMMI strategy as well. So I think it it flows throughout throughout the government. And so from the Innovation Center's perspective, we have proposed and are implementing a health equity strategy that focuses on increasing participation of safety net providers to reach more rural and underserved areas through our models, collecting socioeconomic data and screening for social drivers of health. That is now a key component of a lot of our models. And then really monitoring and evaluating models for health equity impact. And so at every stage of the model, we want to make sure that we're thinking about this potential to advance health equity. And we have made meaningful progress in each of these areas. You mentioned ACO REACH, and I want to make sure to start with that because I think that the, the pieces we laid out in that really laid the groundwork for a lot of our future models. And that included 
um, a novel benchmark adjustment that pays organizations more if they care for a higher proportion of underserved beneficiaries. There's a requirement for a health equity plan. So tell us what disparities you see in your populations and what you're going to do to address those disparities. And that's now a standard requirement across our models. And then also thinking about flexibilities that we can build into our models to expand access. And for example, allowing nurse practitioners to provide more care um, to expand access to care. And we're also thinking about using flexibilities to address social determinants of health. So using being able to use dollars to address nutrition, transportation. I mean, many of the same themes you you heard from Mina. And we think that this really lays the foundation for improving equity and and it also gives model participants the flexibility to target the unique needs of the communities they serve. We're continuing to look for opportunities to close gaps in care and look for populations that are well represented in our models. For example, we're exploring opportunities to improve care for people with disabilities and then also more specific opportunities in rural communities. And I'll just point, point your listeners to a health affairs article that just came out on May 11th by our chief medical officer, Dr. Dora Hughes, that sort of gives you an update on where we are on all of that, if you're interested in reading more. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that article. I finished it earlier today, and I found it really helpful. She covers the whole waterfront of everything you're doing, a couple of things I had missed. And so I really appreciated that article. Go back to quality measurement. People often ask, well, this move to value, haven't we been through this before? There was the era of capitation back in the 90s. What's different? And I often say, what's different is we can measure quality better and we can make sure that, you know, we're getting true value, not just, you know, clamping down on spending. Having said that, hardly anybody, including I think the agency is really happy with how we're measuring quality and providers are unhappy. I, my, one of the hosts of this program, Dr. Josh Israel, wrote an article and he identified some of our physicians in North Carolina because of the multiple value-based contracts they have. Some of them are reporting on 46 quality measures. So I want to tip my hat to you all. You've announced something called the Universal Foundation, which so I'm going to give you a moment or two to explain to everybody what that is. But also I want to ask you, <laughs> is the Universal Foundation going to mean fewer measures or just that some measures will be common across models and programs? This references that big spreadsheet that I was telling you about when I was leading care transformation before in a large health system. I mean, the, the plethora of metrics and the conversations that resulted where we were debating whether we should hold as our goal hemoglobin A1C greater than eight for when you know diabetes is not controlled versus hemoglobin A1C greater than nine instead of how do we take better care of our diabetic patients, right? And so really to have this alignment, I'm very excited about this because I think it will really drive transformation on the ground and enable people to focus where they need to focus and you know, really enable changes in care delivery, in workflows by having everybody kind of aligning with particular metrics. To your question about, is this gonna lead to fewer metrics? I think it's more thinking about that it just changes the concept where rather than having like three or four you know, variations of a theme on the same topic, you're kind of leading to agreement on what we're going to use to help drive overall change in that area. And so it's kind of more of a building blocks approach, if you will, to create a core set of metrics. And for specific populations, 
then there will be an additional, you know, metric set that goes with that. And I think Liz will speak more about how, you know, the innovation center then plays a role on testing, you know, new metrics from there. But I think in doing this universal foundation, not only does it galvanize the change that needs to happen on the ground, but also it enables you to more clearly see where the gaps are and where there are opportunities to think about the next round of metrics. It enables you to look at equity better because now we can start to think about stratifying some of these metrics by different you know, patient characteristics so that you can start to drive reductions in disparities as well as you know, improvements on average. So I think there are many benefits to, to doing this. We have definitely gotten a lot of excited feedback. We published a piece on this in the New England Journal as well. And again, while you have two center leads here on your show today, this really is a concerted effort across all of the centers. Medicare, Medicaid, you know, Marketplace, our Center for Clinical Standards and Quality Innovation <laughs> Center. And I will just say that I'm proud that the Medicare Advantage Advance Notice was the first salvo in getting to this universal foundation. We just happened to have the first regulatory vehicle to use, but, you know, I'll take the <laughs> first salvo where we asked for comment on how the star ratings can start to align better. And I think especially where can we align Medicare Advantage and star ratings with other aspects of accountable care models, right? With Medicare Shared Savings Program, with the Innovation Center models, that alignment on the quality metrics is a very important piece of how we can then drive the move to value-based care and the change that can result from it. Yeah, I'll just add, and thanks, Mina, that was great. And I, you know, we think of this as a building block approach to quality and what the foundation that we've sent, that we've set. And I want to come back to this sort of icebreaker analogy because we see the Innovation Center as potentially playing a role where, you know, sometimes measures may need to diverge depending on the population or the setting or whatever we're testing. And so, the Innovation Center strongly supports these alignment efforts, but we will also continue to test and use new measures where appropriate, maybe a more narrow set of measures where appropriate, that can inform broader Medicare and Medicaid policy in the long run. So we know value-based care is successful when patients receive care that reflects their patients' and their preferences and goals. And so we also have taken steps to announce a strategy of including patient-reported outcome measures in all of our models going forward. And that is a little bit of a divergence from the Universal Foundation. So we are 100% behind it, but we also see our role as, as, as sort of testing and pushing that envelope at the, at the edge there. I think it's a sign of how important the jobs you two have and the size of the issues that you're grappling with that we've gotten this far in the conversation and haven't mentioned that Congress passed a law giving CMS the authority to negotiate prices of some drugs. First time ever, historic legislation. Mina, I believe the Center for Medicare is taking the lead on that. Anything you can tell us? How's the implementation going? I, you know, we follow what you do closely and saw that CMS was hiring up new staff, building a team to implement the law. Anything you want to share with our listeners? Yes. Well, a few things. Number one, we have hit the ground running with implementation. There are 
aggressive timelines to bring benefits to people with Medicare, and we are hitting those timelines. So we rolled out $0 out of pocket for recommended vaccines, $35 copay cap for a month's supply of covered insulin product in Part D on January 1st, and people are benefiting. It's been so amazing to hear the stories of people who were before spending up to $400 a month on insulin. So that's been amazing. We have also put out our draft inflation rebate guidance, which is where we try to prevent the runaway price increases that have been happening in the drug space. And we put out our draft negotiation guidance, as well as some various information collection requests where we get comment on data that we need to collect for the negotiation program. And that's all laid out in a timeline that we put out on how do we stand up this drug price negotiation program. The other key piece that I think is important for all listeners to know is we want to implement this law in the most thoughtful way possible. And that is only possible by engagement with everybody who is involved in healthcare and in the drug space. So providers, patient groups, academics, plans, manufacturers, we have been pounding the pavement to meet with everyone to get their ideas, their perspectives, their data and analyses, and incorporate that into these draft guidances, for example, that we put out that we ask for comment on in an iterative process. So being able to continue to engage both as we develop these policies and as we then implement. Because you can do a $0 vaccine, you put that out as a policy, but if someone with Medicare doesn't know that they can now go get their shingles vaccine for $0, they're not going to go get it, right? And so it's so important also that we partner on how we implement all of these provisions so that they really, you know, come to life on the ground. And the last thing is this is part of overall value-based care, right? Like where we are talking about in our draft negotiation guidance, having the foundation, the starting point of that negotiation process, B, what is the clinical benefit that this drug brings to people? How does it address unmet need? How does it address the needs of specific populations? That is part and parcel with how we, the conversation we've been having about value-based care. How do we improve health by providing better care and spending money in a smarter way? So as we're implementing the Inflation Reduction Act, it's not some implementation that's happening, you know, out on, you know, on some shelf. Okay, there's the implementation we're doing. It is part of all of this work that we're doing in the Medicare program that we're talking about, where we really are thinking about how we can drive improvements in care, both on you know that the drug side with the Inflation Reduction Act provisions, and also with how do we make care more holistic? How do we address social needs? How do we you know advance equity, Im- improve access? All of it is being thought of together. Thank you for that, Mina. I I want to wrap up by making two points. One is thank you both so much for setting that goal of getting beneficiaries in accountable relationships, putting putting a date and a number for Medicare beneficiaries, even for Medicaid beneficiaries. I think you know, when we're out in the field talking to physicians, they all want to know where does CMS want us to go? And you set that bar very clearly and, and then backed it up. As I said, you've got policies and things that are consistent with getting us there. So thank you for that clarity and for the public statements. 
But more importantly, and personally, I always joke, like, Allidate has a lot of ACOs, but we also have a lot of opinions, and we like to share those opinions. And you two have been very gracious with your time, not just today, but for the past couple of years. We don't always see eye to eye, but you've always, and me and I think you were just articulating that, about the importance of getting out and hearing what people have to say. And so we look forward to sharing what we have to say with you continually and appreciate everything you've done in the past as well. So... Mina, Liz, you have two of the coolest jobs in the United States. <laughs> I hope you're enjoying them as much as we're enjoying watching you do them. Absolutely. And thanks again for the opportunity. This episode was produced by Leanne Horst, Alana Kugan, and Stuart Taylor. You can find more episodes of The ACO Show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and join us next time.